Hey, I want to welcome everyone to the Pillar Tax Academy podcast, our inaugural launch of this podcast. And we're joined by our incredible Dan Pillar, the founder of an incredible movement, the tax resolution movement. Most people have no clue, Dan, that you started all this. All these commercials, all of you folks are seeing on TV now. Well, Dan, it's because of a, an incredible book that Dan wrote back in the day that kind of spurned us off, and maybe he could give us a little insight. But the Associated Press said that Dan Pillar knows more about the IRS code than the IRS commissioner. So, Dan, when you heard the, the, the Associated Press come out and make that statement about you, how would you feel about that to start this podcast show off? Well, it's very flattering, Jay. There's no question about it. It's a, it's a heck of a statement for somebody to make. And this was made back in the probably the mid-1990s is when this statement came out. And, you know, I've only uh, studied more since then. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite an accolade, Jay, for sure. Put it this way. It's the kind of a statement that you just simply can't buy in your, in your uh, you know, your advertising and marketing. You can't buy it. All right, but see, there has to be a reason that they would say that. So maybe as we kick off this inaugural podcast, what is the background? Like what would make like the Associated Press make such a statement, Dan? Well, I, I, I worked with a business reporter at the Associated Press for years, Jay. This grisly old reporter named John Cuniff was a heck of a guy, very, very knowledgeable, very, very detailed on business reporting, uh, you know, stuff that was going on in American business, big and small. And I made John's acquaintance in Washington, D.C. at a meeting one time that I was speaking at the state capitol. I had uh, participated in a congressional policy forum with, uh, with some of the, uh, the uh, public policy research institutes out in Washington, D.C., you know, the so-called think tanks, and we were talking about tax reform proposal, and John came up uh, after the meeting, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he shook my hand, and he said, Dan, Dan, I want to get together, and I want to talk about taxes, and I want to talk about the IRS, and this, you know, this guy was just, the, he, John, he, uh, Jay, he was the stereotypical grizzly old reporter right and, uh, and so we sat in his office in new york city on dozens of occasions talking about this irs policy and that irs policy and how the irs enforces this and how they enforce that and he actually came to my office in minnesota in the late 1990s during the senate finance committee hearings on IRS abuse. John came to my office in uh, in a suburb of St. Paul, and we sat in my office for a couple of days, and Dan, how do they get away with this stuff, and how can this possibly be happening? He still was grizzly, huh? Oh, yeah, he was just, he was the great old guy, and, uh, and you know, I just laid out I just laid out chapter and verse for him, Jay, uh, time after time after time on how the IRS works and how people can defend themselves. And he'd say something like to me, he'd say something to me like, Jan, I've been a reporter 35 years. I've never heard this kind of stuff before. I've been doing this forever. I've never heard anything like this before. This is so great. And he was just so thrilled to have a source of information that would give him reliable information, Jay, actionable, usable information that would help his readers across the country. And his column was syndicated around the United States. Of course, he was he was uh, distributed by Associated wow. Press. So his columns went to hundreds of newspapers every single day. Yeah, I think he wrote is he week. still alive today? Is he still alive? Uh, no, he's not. You know, Jay, he was uh, he was ancient when I knew him in the in the 90s or wow. early 80s. But so he's uh, but he's kind of like legendary, right? Oh, yeah. Heck, yeah. You know, you could probably Google him and find a bunch of his articles. John Cuniff. 
Pella, Pella, he, and he, he said, I remember the first time he said it, he said, Pella, you probably know more about the IRS than the commissioner. And I chuckled. I said, well, you know, I don't know. And, and so the next thing I see, it's in print, Jay. And articles wow. So he doubled down on it and put it in print. Put it in print. Yes, he did. You know, they had to see it. You know, they, you know, the IRS had to see oh, yeah. it. No question. Did anybody from the IRS call you up, the commissioner, go, Dan, you don't know more than me. <laughs> No, 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 I no, and and not and not only have I not gotten a call from the commissioner calling me out, I also, Jay, have not gotten a call from uh, a congressional committee asking me to be the commissioner. Nobody's asked wow. me to be the commissioner. Which That's thought, a big one. I thought might be a good job for me to be the commissioner of IRS, but no. Would you take? Would you take? Would you take the job then? I might take that job. I might take that job, Commissioner of IRS. Because you, you believe you could probably make some real change then. I, I, I could make some changes, Jay. There's no doubt about that. Okay, let's just rewind it back because something brought it to that point for you to know what you know. Let's go all the way back to the story I hear about when you were 18 years old. What happened to spark all this? Well, yeah, my dad got in trouble with the IRS, Jay. He had a small business here in our hometown of St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, early 1970s, got behind on his employees with holding taxes. He had, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 employees, whatever it was, and got behind on that employees withholding. And in 1974, the IRS padlocked the doors on his shop, auctioned the equipment off for a couple cents on the dollar. And then in 1978, 79, when I was about 18 years old, uh, little, little, about 78, I guess it was, they turned their attention to our family home and tried to seize and sell it for the back tax mm -hmm. liability. And I remember coming home to my mother's house one day and, and uh, you know, she handed me this envelope. She was sitting at the kitchen table with this letter from the IRS and she handed it to me and said, what do you make of this? And so I read the letter and I says, it looks like they're going to try to seize the house. And she said, what do we do about it? Well, I had no idea what to do about it at that point in time. So seize well, the house for everybody. That means they're going to take the house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they were going to take the house that my parents were living in, that my brothers and, 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 and I were still living at the time. And they wanted to seize it. They wanted to sell it for the back tax liability. And what would happen to you guys then if they did that? What would happen well, to the well, family? They, they, you know, they, she would have been out on the street. The family would have been out on the street, Jay. They, they, Has this they, happened they to a lot of people, Dan? They weren't thinking that far ahead. I'll tell you what, Jay, it used to happen all the time. Up through the end of the 1990s, it used to happen all the time. But what changed the landscape is in 1997, the Senate Finance Committee hearing, uh, the Senate Finance Committee opened hearings on IRS abuse. I was, I, I testified uh, to the Senate Finance Committee on IRS abuse. I documented uh, uh, about 13 or 14 specific ways that the IRS uses bluff and intimidation, misinformation and disinformation. And in many cases, they just bold-faced lie to people concerning what their rights are. That Senate Finance Committee hearing led to the creation of the National Commission on Restructuring the IRS. I became a consultant to the National Commission on Restructuring the IRS. And part of the, I made 33 specific recommendations and proposals to that commission for granting additional taxpayers' rights and leveling the playing field between the IRS and the taxpayer when it comes particularly to audits and collection issues. And one of the recommendations I would I made was for some procedures that would allow a taxpayer to get a hearing before the IRS and the appeals office and the tax court before the IRS enforced collection by, le by levying and seizing property. 
All right, so the commission adopted my recommendation. Congress adopted my recommendation and created what I call the collection due process appeal rights. The collection due process appeal rights allow a taxpayer to challenge IRS enforcement action before it happens. So the IRS was able to shut my dad down in 1974. They auctioned his equipment off for a couple cents on the dollar. They tried to seize and sell our family home. What happened to my father in 1974 can never happen to another taxpayer as long as they know what their rights are. And those wow. critical rights are collection due process appeal rights, Jay. And they're in the law now. This is a statutory protection that you have that can keep the, keep the IRS at arm's length okay. away from you before they execute any of these levy and seizure procedures. So we have safeguards in place now because of my work 20 plus, 30 plus years ago that allows a taxpayer to not be wiped out by the IRS today like my dad was back in the early 70s. All right, so when they came in, now you, you took us through a little jump there because yeah. you came home, They your mom is upset, and as an 18-year-old, what did you do at that moment? Well, I, what I did is I went over to the local law school law library and I started fumbling around the Internal Revenue Code and, and literally stumbled onto an area of the code that deals with taxpayers' rights issues and limits the power of the IRS. The ironic thing here, Jay, is most of, not all, but most of the rights that people have when dealing with the IRS have always been in the law. People just don't know they're there. Mm. But I found a provision of the code that is uh, known as the, uh, the, the wrongful levy and it prevents the IRS from levying property of a non-taxpayer, right? My mother didn't owe the tax. She was a non-taxpayer okay. of the liability of the taxpayer. My father, he's the one who owed the tax. So they don't have the right to take her property to pay her tax, to pay his tax liability. Right, okay. And there's, a there's a provision in the code that allows for a remedy when that happens. So I followed that provision of law. I pasted together a Mickey Mouse lawsuit and I actually sued the IRS in federal district court. At 18 <laughs> I, years of age? I was 18 years, 18, 19 years. Hey, sued the IRS in federal court. And I found myself after filing that lawsuit, I found myself in a federal courtroom in Minneapolis in front of a federal judge. The IRS flew an attorney in from Washington, DC from the U.S. Department of Justice Tax Division, and he was trying to have my case thrown out of court. And so here I am in front of a federal judge, and I say to the judge, you know, judge, uh, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to take my mother's house, and they shouldn't be allowed to do it. And, you know, the law says this, and they're trying to do something different, and, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. And I sat down, and my argument was about that long and about right. that polished, right? There just wasn't that much to it. And I figured this, you know, I just sat down. What else do you say? And this attorney from the government got up and he started blathering on about court cases, this and, and statutes that you've seen these guys in action, Jay, blad, you know, blathering on and on and on about this and this and this. And when he was all finished, the judge looked at him in the eye and he pointed at me and he said, he's right. And he slammed the gavel and stopped the IRS. I thought, well, this is easy. He shut down the IRS. They issued a court order stopping that seizure. And, wow. and uh, I've been stopping the IRS ever since, Jay. I ever stopped since. that. And I've been stopping them ever since. So, so, Dad, did you go into the courtroom that day looking to start a tax resolution business? No, no, absolutely not, Jay. I, I went into that courtroom with a with very, very narrow purpose of, of, of seeing if I could help my mother keep her house. But what happened is in between the time that I was in that courtroom in the late 70s, and the time that my dad got in trouble with the IRS in the first place in the early 70s, 
he got involved with the tax protester movement. These are the people that say that the tax laws are voluntary and they're unconstitutional and they don't apply to U.S. citizens and on and on and on with these various arguments, all of which don't work, by the way, all of which don't work. But he got involved in those arguments because desperate people cling to desperate measures as some kind of a resolution. And that's what he was hoping to achieve. Well, all of the people that were involved in this so-called tax protester movement were typically involved because they have tax problems, right? Okay. As I said, desperate people reach out to for desperate measures. So there probably were 100 people in the courtroom that day, and I'll bet 90. 100 of, people? There could have been. There was very probably had to be very close to that. And I'll bet 90% okay. of them were my dad's tax protester buddies. They all had tax problems. So they saw the judge slam the gavel. They heard the judge tell that uh, DOJ attorney that I was right and he was wrong. So by the time I got home to my mother's house, Jay, they were lined up at the door. And they said, hey, Dan, can you help me with my tax problem? And I said, sure, baby, I'm undefeated. Let's go here. And it was it was an instant practice, Jay, at that point, wow. just trying to help people solve their tax problems. And it wasn't until many, many years after that, that I wrote my first book, and then another book and another book. And in 1993, I wrote the book, How to Get Tax Amnesty. And that book was written on the heels of former IRS Commissioner Shirley Peterson, she was a commissioner of IRS from about plus or minus 1990 to about 94, right in that window. Okay. And she made eight administrative changes to the Internal Revenue Service, how the agency operates, eight administrative changes in the early 1990s to try to bring the IRS to heal a little bit, to try to level the playing field between the IRS and taxpayers a little bit, to give people more negotiation leverage when they're dealing with tax problems. And she made the comment, that the IRS has to be more like private businesses when they're dealing with people who can't collect. She says you can't get blood out of a turnip. And when we're dealing with turnips, we're better off cutting our losses and moving on. And based right. on that concept, she developed, she issued eight administrative changes. And I took those eight changes and analyzed all of them and wrote my book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, based on those eight administrative changes. That book, Jay, ended up selling over 270,000 copies across the United States. And a good percentage, and I don't know what the percentage is, but I'll bet it's 10 or 15% of the people who bought that book were tax pros. Attorneys, wow. accountants, enrolled agents, people that practice before the IRS, they read my book and they put it into practice. That book is what's responsible for creating the tax resolution industry as we know it today. That's amazing. What a story. So <clears throat> now everybody's got some backdrop on Dan. Now you know his credentials, his credibility is off the charts. What a great story. Right. That 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 American hero type story, you know, coming home, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's like it's like a Wild West type of thing. You know, Dad, you know, he put his hand on the six shooter and says, no, not going to let this happen, mom. So you had to be your mom's hero. Um, let's talk about some stuff that's happening now. Yeah. Um, I got a couple of notes here and. I, I, I heard that the IRS just announced it will no longer make unannounced personal visits to taxpayers. What does that mean? Yeah, that's that's a good question. First of all, what were they doing? And now what are they doing? Uh -huh. if, if, let's let's talk specifically about people who owe taxes now. All right. Uh, you file your tax return. Uh, pick a year. Let's say you file your 2020 tax return, 2021 tax return, and you owe the IRS 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand. You can't pay the money. 
you file that return with the IRS and you have that kind of a significant tax liability, Jay, uh, mid to high, fi high five figures of tax liability, the IRS historically would pay a visit on you. And when I say pay a visit, they would come out with what's called a revenue officer. A revenue officer is a tax collector. He's not a tax auditor. He's not a criminal investigator. He's not a tax lawyer. He's a tax collector. The revenue officers collect taxes, all right? So this revenue officer would come out, he'd knock on your door, he would show you his ID, he would give you his business card, and he'd say, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, you owe the government 40 grand. I want you to write a check. Well, you know, there are not many people that can write a check for 40 grand, Jay. And if you're delinquent on your taxes, you especially can't write a check for 40 right. grand in most right. cases. So, so that is what the personal visit was all about. They would come out, they would see you face to face, they would serve collection papers on you. And those collection papers would be a final notice of intent to levy that says you got to pay us in 30 days or else. We can talk about that. And, and, and it's a it's a whole different discussion. So maybe okay. it's a discussion for a future uh, for okay. a future blog, what to do with that final notice letter. But they would serve that final notice letter on the taxpayer and put the fear of God in them, Jay. That's what they would do. So it was like intimidation tactics. Yeah, it's an intimidation tactic. <clears throat> and obviously, they wanted to collect the money. So they would say, well, we're not here to intimidate. We're here to collect. But the person on the other end of the of the door knock, right, the taxpayer, the citizen on the other end of the door knock, well, it was a little different situation for them. Well, you know, why are you out here in, in my face? Why, right. are you, why are you serving this letter on me? Why don't you just drop it in the mail? And so it would create all kind of angst all kinds of anxiety. Then the revenue officer would say, you know, if you can't pay the money within 30 days, you need to fill out all this paperwork. And then they would serve them with a stack of paperwork, which consisted of a financial statement, a personal financial statement, a business financial statement. If the individual is missing tax returns, the uh, revenue officer would demand production of all those tax returns, and it would create a lot of turmoil with people when they got that personal visit from a revenue officer. So when the IRS says now that they're not going to make personal visits anymore, that's the only thing they're talking about is that revenue officer coming out to your house to collect taxes. So let's have a little clarity here, Jay. Okay. You're going through a tax audit. Tax auditors never, ever made unannounced visits to the taxpayer's home or business. Okay. Tax auditors never did that. Never did that. Okay. 100% of the time, tax auditors would issue a letter in the mail first that says you've been selected for audit. I'm your auditor. Here are the issues that we want to talk about. Here's a request for documents. Here's a, 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 a suggest a, a date that we want to meet either by phone or in person. And it would always, the audit would always be initiated through the mail process. Then you'd have a chance to sit down, read through the letter, uh, you know, collect your thoughts, right? Before you have right. a chance to respond. There's not somebody in your face, wagging face, their right. finger in your nose, catching you flat-footed, right? That would never happen with an audit. Then you have a chance to sit down with your accountant or your tax pro before you right. go into the audit. You have a chance to get your, uh, your documents together, your wits together, so you're not flat-footed. Collection people wouldn't do that. They'd show up at the door wagging the finger in your face. Wow. Now, here's another point of clarity, Jay. There's three functions of the IRS that people might come into contact with. The first function is the audit function. These people audit tax returns to determine whether the return is correct or not. 
The okay. second function is collection, right? Once you owe taxes, now the IRS wants to collect the tax and that's done through the collection division. Okay. And then the third division that nobody wants to ever know about, Jay, <laughs> is the criminal investigation division, all right? Uh, criminal right. investigation. If the IRS believes that you might be engaged in some kind of tax fraud or evasion or failure to file a return or filing a false document, you did some potential criminal act, then the special agents show up at the door. And the special agents show up at the door, Jay, unannounced, and they redo your rights. Now, this new policy that the IRS has about not making personal visits only applies to collection. It does not apply to criminal investigation people. Criminal mm -hmm. investigation will continue to make unannounced visits to taxpayers. And this is now CI, criminal investigation. These guys are different, right? These are, these are very highly trained professional investigators that know exactly what they're looking for. These are not bumbling tax auditors and they're right. not thuggish tax collectors. These are highly trained FBI-like professionals, right? They are investigators. They right. show up in tandem. They knock on your door at seven in the morning when you're just getting out of the shower and you barely got your coffee in your hand. And the very first thing they say is, Mr. Smith, I am a criminal investigator with the Internal Revenue Service. I'm here to answer some questions or to, here to ask you some questions about your tax return. But first, I have to read you your rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to counsel. Anything you say can be used against you. Hey, wow. if you're being read your rights by an IRS guy at seven in the morning, Jay, you better listen to what he says when he says you got the right to remain silent. You better keep your damn mouth shut and you better get counsel at that moment. Wow. That's criminal. People don't need to say it. You're saying if that happens, people don't need to say anything right there. No, absolutely not. Not only do you not need to say anything, you damn sure better not say anything until you get counsel to figure out. Now, from there, now we, we again, this is a very in-depth discussion or subject, I should say, that would be an in-depth discussion probably for a future time. Right, right. But, okay. uh, but one thing is for sure is with the right counsel, you can open up the lines of communication with the special agent and figure out what it is they're looking for. What's going on? Keep it from turning into a criminal case. Criminal investigations don't always turn into criminal prosecutions, right. but it takes good counsel to keep that from happening. Now, do you ever get involved in those cases? Yes. Yes. I've been involved in many over the years. Yes. So, so, so could people hire you if they find get in that type of situation yes they could yep absolutely wow this this is like a whole nother angle so though so we know that this uh unannounced personal visits most people are not aware of that so now you know that if it's a collections issue all right then they're not showing up at your door why do you think they made that decision not to show well, up well like i can that? i can tell you what they say and i can tell you what i think is really happening all right okay what they okay. say is that they're not showing up at people's doors because they are concerned for the safety of their agents. What they're telling us is that all the hype over the last year and a half about the uh, uh, IRS gearing up with their $80 billion appropriation, it's now been cut by $20 billion, so it's a $60 billion appropriation to hire tens of thousands of more agents has got everybody whipped up into a frenzy. And now the IRS is afraid that if they go to somebody's door, they're going to be assaulted. That's what they're saying. That's complete nonsense. 
All right, it's complete nonsense. What's really happening is two things. Number one, they're understaffed. There's no question about that. The IRS has, a, has had a significant drop in employees over the last 10 years, and they are experiencing further drops in employees going forward because even though they got $60 billion from Congress to hire more workers, they aren't able to hire those people and train those people overnight, Jay. It takes time. This is a very complicated, right. very detailed-oriented job. These people have to be trained. Most of the ones that are on the job for 10 years aren't trained properly, right? They certainly aren't going to have people that are on the job for right. 10 months trained properly. That. That's not going to happen. So. Right. So they're telling, so, so I believe they're doing it because they're understaffed and they can't send these people out in the street, right? Number one. Number two, 100% of the time, Jay, 100% of the time, when these people, when these tax uh, collectors would go out and knock on somebody's door, as I said, they don't read you your rights because it's not an investigation. They'll, they'll, they'll just say, Mr. Smith, my name is Dan Pillum from the IRS. I'm a, uh, I'm a revenue officer from the IRS. My job is to collect taxes. And we, we know that you've got assessments here for the last seven years. You owe the IRS 50 grand. Uh, you know, we, we'd like to collect that. Uh, you probably can't write a check. I got to ask you, can you write a check? And the taxpayer says, well, no, I can't write a check. Okay, if you can't write a check, I need to deliver these papers to you. And here's a letter here that explains your rights. And here's an information document request here that explains what information you need to get me so that I can work with you to get this resolved. And then here's a deadline at the bottom of the letter. And here are the blank forms that you need to fill out if you want to try to work with me. Here are the blank forms. That's it right there. It's a 10-minute discussion. And then the guy leaves. Well, Jay, all of that can be accomplished by just mailing the letter to the taxpayer in the first place. Right? Yes. They didn't have to go out there. They didn't have to knock on the door. They didn't have to scare the hell out of the guy. They didn't have to intimidate him and frighten him and, and create all this angst and all this anxiety. None of that had to happen. They just mail the letter. That's all they have to do. So Amazing. that's what they're going to do. They're going to mail the letter. They're going to mail the letter. And, and it's going to cut back on taxpayers' dollars. Sure, sure. Having to pay for all that. So, uh, so what do you think they're going to be doing instead? Um, well, going out to the door. Yeah, the, ra rather than going to the door, they're going to mail the letter. Uh, the, the, the letter that I'm referring to is called the final notice of intent to levy and notice of your right to a hearing. I alluded earlier to that collection due process appeal right that we created in the 1990s with the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act. The collection due process appeal rights, Jay, are the most important rights, my opinion, are the most important rights that taxpayers have when dealing with the IRS. Because when you get that final notice letter, it's it's a tragedy and a hope story, right? The tragedy is, this is your final notice. This is a notice of our intent to levy. If you don't pay in 30 days, we're going to levy your paycheck, your bank account, your automobile, all these things we're going to take from you if you don't respond within 30 days. So that's the bad news. The good news, or else appeal. You've got 30 days to pay in full or else file a request for an appeal. And the collection due process appeal takes the case out of the hands of the collection function and puts it into the hands of the appeals office where the written job description of the appeals office is to negotiate some kind of reasonable resolution. The written statutory description of the okay. collection due process appeal channel, Jay, is the IRS appeals officer must balance the need of the IRS for efficient enforcement and collection against 
the interest of the taxpayer that collection be no more invasive than necessary. Wow. So they have to strike the balance. So think of this for a minute. When the revenue officer goes out the door, goes out to the door, he wants the money right now. Right. But the taxpayer, they want some flexibility, some terms and, and, and some, some uh, you know, some terms to pay it back on. The appeals officer has to strike that balance between getting the money efficiently and not being invasive when it comes to the taxpayer's ability to pay for their necessary living expenses and support their families. So this is where we want the case. We want the case in front of appeals, not in the hands of a revenue officer. And that's where you really come in and shine. And you got so much information. You know, if everybody's been enjoying this particular podcast, it's loaded with information. And we're going to continue this to pour it in for multiple angles. Then you need to go over to PillarTaxAcademy.com. I would suggest that as, as a normal average taxpayer or a high-level taxpayer, that you, you, you know, you get on the taxpayer's rights mastery course. And if you're a business owner, especially, I would suggest that you grab Dan's business owner's tax mastery course that you can get over on Pillar Tax Academy. So we're giving you a ton of great information for free on this podcast. You guys are going to enjoy it. And just spread this around, share it, you know, make sure that you're subscribing to whatever your favorite platform is and share it with other people. So Dan, you got any parting words, you know, for, for people out there regarding taxes? You know, my goal was to, let's try to figure out how to make taxes sexy and exciting to talk about because we all got to deal with it. So let's, make, let's have some fun with it while educating. What do you got to say to the taxpayers out there that are listening to this podcast? Well, pe people are destroyed by lack of knowledge, Jay. That's been the case since the beginning of dawn, since the dawn of time. Big. Lack of information has crushed people. And when we're dealing with the IRS, it's the lack of information that's responsible for the fear, the anxiety, the angst, the intimidation. All of that can go away. Look, at even if you owe the IRS a million dollars, even if you owe the IRS $10 million, it doesn't matter. There's a way to resolve the problem, and we can eliminate the angst, the hassle, the anxiety, the fear, the intimidation. All of that can go away because there's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. There's always a way to resolve the problem. I think that's what people think when they get hit with these threatening letters or somebody showing up or something crazy. I think they think it's hopeless, Dan. It's hopeless. You're saying it's not hopeless. Yeah, it is not hopeless. They're, they think two things, Jay. They think, number one, they're alone, and number two, it's hopeless. First of all, you're not alone. There's millions of people out there that have these problems, and, they're, and, and I'm here to help you get through it. So you're not alone, number one. Number two, I don't care what kind of a problem you have. I don't care how long you've had it. I don't care what you've tried to do to fix the problem. I don't care who's told you you can't fix the problem. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. There's always a way to fix the problem. And, and dad proved that from the beginning where he said that his dad was involved as a tax protester. So even if you're one of those folks, which a lot of folks get themselves caught up into, and then they even feel even more hopeless, like, oh my gosh, yeah. I'm going to get in way more trouble because I was a tax protester. Dan, hit on that before we close out of here. Let's just say they were a tax protester. Let's say they haven't filed tax returns in forever. Can you help these folks? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. There's no question about it. Absolutely. What you have to do, though, is if you're into that tax protest thing, you've got to come to the resolution in your mind that you got to stop that, right? You got to cure the non-filing. You got to get back on the beam, pay your taxes for 2023, 
file your tax returns that are missing, and then the IRS will play ball with you. If you get current, Jay, they will play ball with you. Say somebody hadn't filed tax returns seven, 10 years, and they're going, can't afford to pay all that money. Uh, yeah, what do you do for those folks? Yeah, it doesn't matter. In a situation like that, we would get the delinquent returns filed for at least six years. I'd get the client current for the year that we're in now, which is 2023. So I'd get them making the estimated payments and doing the things they have to do to get back on the beam currently. And then based on their financial situation, we would consider negotiating an offer and compromise. An offer and compromise is the process the IRS uses to negotiate delinquent case, uh, delinquent liabilities. So let's say let's say the guy owes a million dollars and he he you look at his equity and assets and his ability to make a payment over time based on current income and expenses. Let's say he can only pay 50 grand. Well, in that situation, that'd be the settlement. You owe him a million, you settle for 50 grand, as long as you stay current going forward. Yeah, I think I think that should be a lot of relief for a lot. I think that should be a lot of relief for a lot of people that if they got some crazy situation going on, which got, folks, a lot of people got crazy situations. I had a crazy situation going on. How do you think I know that? Because back in around 2005 or something like that, I got that knock on the door, <laughs> and it didn't feel good. And I thought, oh my goodness, the sky's falling. And then Dan came in. And said, look, we got to get you current. We got to get these things straight. And then what I think that a lot of people don't know is that you go and start working on behalf to negotiate for them. Yeah. Do they have to talk to the IRS at all? No, 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 no. No, you don't have to talk to the IRS. You get you get qualified counsel. I would say qualified and competent because they aren't necessarily the same thing, right? You can be qualified but not competent. You know that, Jay. You right. got to get qualified and competent counsel, and then the taxpayer, the client, never has to talk to the IRS. So you would be doing all the talking to the IRS. Yeah. They don't ever have to talk to them. If you step in, will anybody show up at their house? No. <laughs> See, no. that's to me... Y'all got to hear that, man. What a great initial podcast to open up with that. I can't wait for the next one just because we're going to have so many subjects to talk about. And so stay educated. Dan said it. People, they really perish for lack of knowledge. So thank you, Dan, for this great show. And until the next time, man, y'all make sure you get this knowledge from Pillow Tax Academy. It can save your entire financial life. And I mean that. Thank you, Dan. All right. My pleasure, Jim. 